Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the July 18th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to share a quick overview of the new material that you'll find if you go to annals.org. Let's start with an article that reports a study that found that an episode of acute kidney injury does not predict worsening of the trajectory of kidney function in persons with chronic kidney disease. The occurrence of acute kidney injury is often thought to be an independent risk factor for accelerated loss of kidney function leading to changes in practice. However, prior studies that have associated acute kidney injury with acceleration of subsequent loss of kidney function had methodological limitations, including inadequate accounting for differences between patients who had acute kidney injury and those who did not. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, and Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, studied 3,150 persons with chronic kidney disease to determine whether acute kidney injury is independently associated with the subsequent trajectory of kidney function. They observed 612 episodes of acute kidney injury in 433 persons over a median follow-up of 3.9 years. After adjusting for patient characteristics such as pre-hospitalization, estimated GFR, slope, and level of proteinuria, acute injury did not predict worsening of subsequent kidney function trajectory. Instead, the authors highlight that their results suggest that much of the kidney disease observed following an episode of acute kidney injury appears to be present prior to the injury. They acknowledge that a diagnosis of acute kidney injury does present an opportunity to identify high-risk patients and implement evidence-based interventions to slow chronic kidney disease progression. Next is a study that will be of interest to listeners who scuba dive or care for patients who do. Decompression illness is a condition in which inhaled nitrogen is dissolved in tissues or blood under a high pressure during a diver's descent and subsequently forms gas bubbles when the diver rises, mechanically affecting the tissue or inhibiting blood flow. If a patent foramen ovale is present, the defect enables venous nitrogen bubbles to embolize into the arterial system. Previous studies suggest a higher prevalence of patent foramen ovale in divers who experienced decompression illness than in those who did not. However, the association between patent foramen ovale and decompression illness remains unclear given the very low prevalence of decompression illness and the high prevalence of patent foramen ovale. Researchers from South Korea conducted a prospective cohort study of 100 experienced divers who did more than 50 dives per year. Participants had transesophageal echocardiography with the saline bubble test to determine the presence of a patent foramen ovale and were subsequently divided into high- and low-risk groups. They were followed up using a self-reported questionnaire while blinded to their cardiac status. The researchers report that 12 of 68 divers with patent foramen ovale and 10 of 37 divers with high-risk patent foramen ovale experienced decompression illness. These findings suggest that divers with high-risk patent foramen ovale are more susceptible to decompression illness than has previously been reported. According to the authors, their findings also suggest that decompression illness events with mild symptoms occurred frequently in divers with patent foramen ovale, but many divers did not recognize them as decompression illness. 
The authors recommend that divers with high-risk patent for amen ovale should consider either refraining from diving or adhering to a conservative diving protocol. Medical groups, health systems, and professional associations are concerned about increases in physician turnover. Although physicians may turn over, move to a new practice, or stop practicing altogether for many reasons, increasing turnover rates may suggest growing dissatisfaction with the practice of medicine or with the organization in which the physician practices. There are no national estimates of physician turnover, so it is not known whether turnover has increased as it is sometimes assumed. Next is an analysis of Medicare billing that examined physician turnover rates between 2010 and 2020. Researchers analyzed 100% of traditional Medicare billing to create national estimates of physician turnover. Standardized turnover rates were compared by physician, practice, and patient characteristics. The authors found that the annual rate of turnover increased from 5.3% to 7.2% between 2010 and 2014, was stable through 2017, and increased again in 2018 to 7.6%. According to the authors, the main driver of the increase between 2010 and 2014 came from physicians who stopped practicing. The authors also found that in the second and third quarters of 2020, quarterly turnover was slightly lower than in the corresponding quarters of 2019. The authors note that there were higher rates of turnover among rural and female physicians, as well as physicians who saw a large proportion of dual eligible patients. And while on the topic of physician turnover, I want to point out a new graphic medicine feature that examines the moral distress and coping practices among clinicians during the pandemic. Amid a historic overdose crisis in the United States, naloxone has a crucial role in stemming the loss of life. However, it remains largely inaccessible to the public. Recently, the FDA announced the approval of the first over-the-counter formulation of naloxone. While this historic change provides an important opportunity to increase distribution of naloxone, the authors of a new commentary advocate for care during this transition so that it does not paradoxically threaten overall access to this life-saving medication, ensuring the supply of naloxone meets demand at a sustainable price for consumers in the most need. The opioid crisis is one of many issues that the United States public health sector plays a crucial role in. Public health initiatives drove massive gains in life expectancy during the 20th century by supporting vaccination campaigns, promoting motor vehicle safety, and preventing and treating tobacco use. However, in the U.S., public health is underfunded and underappreciated. Next is a physician paper from the American College of Physicians that outlines the organization's policy recommendations to strengthen the nation's public health infrastructure. ACP calls for effective coordination of public health activities, robust and stable year-to-year funding of public health services, a renewed and well-supported public health workforce, action to address health-related myths and disinformation, modernize public health data systems, and greater coordination between public health and medical sectors. In accompanying editorial, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who recently stepped down as director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and her colleague Sherry Berger emphasized the importance of the ACP recommended actions, but also mentioned the importance of other components such as strong coordination across the Department of Health and Human Services. They write, quote, we must advance bipartisan solutions to fund, support, integrate, and empower public health, end quote. 
In a new Medicine and Public Issues article, authors take a shot at addressing the spread of misleading medical information. Authors who hail from the American Board of Internal Medicine, the ABIM Foundation, and several leading academic institutions say COVID-19 case studies, among other examples, can inspire new recommendations aimed at combating viral medical rumors and false or misleading information online. According to the lead author, Dr. Richard Barron, this issue is particularly important considering the recent judicial opinion prohibiting the federal government from influencing social media companies. The authors share case studies from two grassroots efforts, This Is Our Shot and Vacunate Ya, aimed at empowering trusted medical professions to share accurate health information on social media and combat misinformation with the goal of increasing COVID vaccination and building healthier communities. They discussed challenges that these programs faced included limited funding, limited data about the digital audience, and online harassment and attacks aimed at public health communicators. Considering these challenges, the authors recommend the creation of a sustainably funded, independent, public-private partnership to address these challenges. The topic of this month's In the Clinic review is atrial fibrillation. Go to annals.org to refresh your knowledge about this very common condition. Also new are two on being a doctor essays, a poem, and the latest episodes of the Annals Consult Guys and the Annals on Call podcast. The Consult Guys and their guests address the question, can you stop heart failure medications if the injection fraction recovers? And the new Annals on Call podcast episodes feature conversations about diagnostic excellence and firearm injury prevention. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've mentioned. Come back in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.